the theme that we're studying this fall are the nine habits that make people chronically unhappy. And the reason we're focusing on that is the belief that Jesus came to give people abundant life. And one of the most uh, pervasive reasons that we don't experience the life that God made us for are the simple habits that we engage in without even thinking of them, which rob us of the life and the joy that God made us for. So if you have any sense this morning that life isn't all it could be, I'll tell you that uh, the habits that we engage in without even knowing it are often the things that inhibit us from walking with Jesus into true life. Let me ask you this question. Have you ever thought to yourself, I would be happier if I had more money? Some of you have thought that? Of course. And everyone thinks that from time to time. When I was a young pastor, I was invited to the home of a very generous and a wealthy man who lived in the town where I pastored. I showed up at his house, and he met me in the driveway. We walked through the main floor of his house, out into the back, where the outdoor pool was. There was also an indoor pool. I walked out on the lawn with him, and we brushed aside the uh, exotic birds, and no, there weren't. I'm making that part up. We walked out into what was the prettiest lawn that I have ever seen in my life. And it was high up on a bluff, looking over the river toward the town where I lived. And I was there to see if he would be willing to help support the building fund that we were doing. As we walked from the, the pool toward the cliff edge, we sat down in a hanging chair that was right on the edge of the drop-off, surrounded by gardens. And I thought to myself... If I lived here, I would be the happiest man on planet Earth. We sat together, and I said to him, if I lived here, I would sit in this seat every day. He said, no, you wouldn't. The first time I sat here was when we bought it. This is the second time I've been out here. If you lived here, you would be working all the time. Now, listen. One of the most pervasive misunderstandings that I've experienced as a pastor who's interacted with thousands of people is the belief that having more things will make you happy deep down inside. That outlook tempts us, and not just people who live in fine houses, but every person, to trade the one commodity that we have, which is utterly irreplaceable in, we give our time up, for stuff. And as we are drawn, and, and it happens, drawn deeper into this belief that if I only have more, then I'll finally be okay, over and over again, our values get twisted, our outlook is warped, and we find ourselves missing life in the pursuit of stuff. The habit that we're going to consider today is, it is a habit, it is the habit of spending too much time acquiring stuff. And it is not only a danger for people who live in 40,000 square foot houses that look out over the river. All of us, all of us will be tempted by the drive to trade in our time for things. And so, we all need to hear the word of God as it speaks to this particular habit. Jesus addressed the subject 
to the crowds that gathered with him through these words. If you have a Bible, open to Luke chapter 12 and find verse 15. These are the words of Jesus. Take care. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. For life, for one's life, does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Greed is an ever-increasing drive to acquire more than you need. And if a person follows that drive and manages to acquire more, what they discover is that it doesn't deliver on its promise, and so they need yet more. And so greed is desire which is inordinate and drives people into behaviors and patterns where they trade in what matters and cannot be purchased for things that can be purchased but never deliver. Jesus warned the crowds about greed so that they would find their ways on the path of life rather than away from life. And when he did that, he made it plain that there is more than one form that this vice can take. Notice again, he said, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Jesus said this because greed is not just the desire for money or fine homes but the desire for possessions of every kind. Intangible things can also be the objects of your greed, achievements, acclaim, popularity, positive regard from others, successes in whichever field you've decided matters enough for you to strive to get it. A person can be greedy for almost anything, and you have to take care, according to Jesus, because when you yield to that drive, you make a fundamental mistake about life itself. It's not just a rule that he put out there so that we would have another way to prove our worthiness. Greed is a mistake about life. Look at again what he says. He says, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Life is not about things. To the greedy person, life becomes about that thing. The drive to acquire those possessions, according to Jesus, is fueled by a fundamental misunderstanding about the nature of life itself. That person believes, if I achieve, if I acquire, I will be satisfied. According to Jesus, it is not true. And whenever that impulse leads you to trade time and relationships for things, you actually miss real life in the process. The occasion for this story, the reason Jesus told it is actually illuminating. Okay, try to use your imagination. Jesus is teaching in the countryside. And there are crowds of people who've gathered around him. They are there to listen because he is helpful when he speaks. He is speaking to them because they need the help that only he can give. And so he's there teaching. And as the crowds are listening, he gets onto the subject of hypocrisy in religious leaders. And he contrasts that with genuine faith. I wonder how many of you have been disappointed by the hypocrisy you see in religious leaders who have a prominent place in the public eye. Have you ever thought, why do they behave like this? Jesus is teaching about that, and he's setting beside it what genuine faith looks like, and he's doing this because he wants to liberate people. This is an aside. I am teaching this morning because I want God to liberate you through the words that I speak. If you're thinking right now about the person who should hear this because they're the one who's wealthy, try your best to turn your attention away from that. 
You are just as subject to this danger as anyone is. And the reason that Jesus told this story makes that plain enough. He pauses, and there's a guy in the crowd who calls out with a request of Jesus. Teacher, he says, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. This guy's father had died. And now he and his brother are in a fight about the stuff that dad left behind. Jesus responds to him with a question. Who appointed me to be a judge or an arbitrator over you? Jesus knows what this guy wants is for him to officiate at a division between him and his brother, which, once it's finalized, will keep those two apart for the rest of their lives. You want me to make a judgment against your brother because you think I'm the one who should divide you two. I'm not a divider. I'm a uniter. I didn't come to authorize fights between siblings about their father's stuff. You only want me to do that because you don't understand what real life is. You think your stuff is more important than your brother, but you're wrong. And that is the moment when Jesus shared the principle that we began with. Take care, be on your guard against all kinds of greed because life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Jesus said that because he sees a family hanging in the balance and it's stuff that was left behind by a man who died that was gonna do it. Do you think that still happens today? It sure does. It happens more than you know. And I know about it because as a pastor, I'm often invited into the moments when someone has died to do the funeral, but it turns into a fight. I once had a woman brag to me about how principled she was because she hadn't talked to her sister since her mom died. My, my sister wanted the chest of drawers. It was mine. I haven't talked to her for three years. I was supposed to be proud of her for that. Stuff has the power to ruin us when we get our attention on it in the wrong way. And right now, you need to consider, not someone else, but where might you be tempted to spend too much time acquiring stuff? That day that Jesus shared that principle after that man called out, he said what I've just said, and he looked at the group, and he thought, you know what? I need to stay on this subject a little more. I'm not done preaching yet either. <laughs> he told a parable, and he told it so that in addition to his plain teaching, they would have a story to envision. And he wanted them to see it so they would be themselves shaken free of a temptation that every single one of us will also need to be shaken free of, which is to have the wrong idea about where life is. Because we will be tempted to think it's in possessions. Here's the story. It starts in verse 16. The land of a rich man produced abundantly. And he thought to himself, what should I do? For I have no place to store my crops. A wealthy landowner has an exceptionally good growing year. At harvest time, he has so much grain, there's nowhere to store it. And so he considers his options. What should I do? Jesus puts us inside the mind of this successful businessman. What should I do? Obviously, 
He could bring all of his grain to market and he could sell it for a profit, but that's not what this guy chooses because he's too clever for that strategy. It's, it's accurate that he could make a lot of money, but there's another way he can make even more. And that becomes clear in what he says next. Look at verse 18. Then he said, I'll do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. This strategy, this strategy is a win for him because of where he lives. In this century, subsistence living was the norm, which means in the village and the villages around where he grows his grain, the people have to live on what is produced and sold in any given year. If the man brings the excess to market, demand will go down, and with it, the price will also go down. But on the other hand, if he decides to hold back some of what he's produced in that year, he can actually control demand and make the prices go up by only releasing a little bit. And then, if there's a bad year down the road, he can bring what he's stored to market and do it again. It's good for him at the expense of all of the people in the village who depend on him. Do you see it? This is smart. You know about supply and demand, don't you? Come on, help me out here. Yeah. This guy knows what he's doing. You know it's going to be worse for everyone else because they're going to have to spend more on less. But it's going to be good for him because he will get more for less and have some more for himself later. Can you see what drives him? I can't tell if you can see it. Yes. Someone said it over here. Greed. His drive is to have more possessions for himself, an abundance of possessions for himself, to get as much as he can without regard for the impact on others. Why does he behave in this way? Why would anybody do that? Jesus is a remarkable storyteller. He lets us into the mind of this man as he describes what he anticipates and reveals his motivation for behaving in this way in verse 19. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Do you see what he wants? He wants a good retirement. He wants to enjoy good food, delicious drinks. He wants to relax and be merry. He wants his soul to be satisfied. Is there anyone in here who doesn't want that too? No? I want it. Don't you want that? Listen, there's nothing wrong with his desire to have a soul which is satisfied. I want to say this as plainly as I can. It is a cheap distortion of discipleship to tell people that if they follow Jesus, all of their wishes will come true and life will be happy. That is a lie that comes from the enemy. It is also untrue to say that walking with Jesus guarantees a miserable life where your soul is always unhappy. That's also not true. In fact, the only path to satisfaction that is actually truly open for us is the path where we're walking with Jesus. There are people who think they're walking with him, and they're not. 
and they're miserable. There are people who don't know they're walking with Jesus and they have a deep and settled soul satisfaction because against their awareness, they've actually come to the master who invites all to come to him and they've yielded themselves to him. They don't even know it yet. That's also true. But right now, all of us are in the position right now of deciding, will we walk with Jesus or not? And if we will, then the door that's open for us is a door to having just what this guy wants. A soul which is satisfied. Good food, even if it's just vegetable soup. It's hard for me to say that because I love meat. But it says so in Proverbs, better a dinner of vegetables than meat where there is corruption and sin. The problem with this guy's strategy, it's not what he wants, it's how he believes he'll get there. Now this is the point where every one of you will have to open your heart to the influence of God's spirit for this to help you. If you're comparing yourself to others who have more, it's not gonna help. If you're anxious about whether you're gonna be put on the hook or not by what comes next, let me just tell you, you will be if your ears are open. All of us will be. We think that we're not rich because we imagine someone who lives in a nicer house than we do. We are unbelievably wealthy. The poorest one of us in here is unbelievably wealthy. It all comes down to who you compare yourself to. The folks who are going to benefit because a bunch of people in our church are not here this morning running a race, they have to live on a dollar a day. We are so wealthy. So if you open your heart to see how the habit that ruins this guy's life is also in you, then maybe you'll see what comes next. His strategy is to get soul satisfaction through the ever-increasing accumulation of possessions. What is it that you have been led to believe, if I get that, I'll be okay? Again, it doesn't need to be a tangible thing. It might be. There are some folks in here who have enormous wealth, and they still feel, I don't have enough. If it's not that for you, it is something. It is for me. What Jesus does next in his story is absolutely stunning. So far, he's been showing us the man's conversation with himself. Now he shows us God himself speaking to the man. In the midst of this strategy for real life, watch what happens next. This is verse 20. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life is being demanded of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? I don't know what you believe about what happens after you die. Many, many of us will believe that in some measure we'll stand before God. If you don't believe that, imagine that's what happens. And the divine assessment on your life is this, you fool. In, in Greek, it's one word, and the word literally means mindless. God is not mean. God is kinder than you could possibly imagine. If you try to envision the most gracious and merciful being you could ever fathom, maybe your grandfather was so kind to you or you used to curl up in your grandmother's lap and there you thought this must be what God is like. God is a hundred times better than she is. No disrespect to your grandma. But this assessment from God is not mean. It's accurate. And it's accurate because this man's strategy is literally mindless for two reasons. The first is he 
hedges everything on a future that he does not know whether it will come to him or not. You ever think of that? I had a conversation yesterday. My wife and I were talking. She said, it's weird to think our lives are probably halfway over. I thought it could be 99% over. And that's not me being dramatic. It's true. I might not be here tomorrow. I plan on it, but I might not. I don't know. This man makes a plan to give up all of his time in the present for a future that he will never get to face because he dies before he gets to enjoy it. And in that sense, it's mindless. And it's even more mindless because the strategy of building up all this stuff, it begs this question. It's the one that God asks him. The stuff that you've saved, whose will it be? Whose will they be? Do you remember when Jesus told this story, the occasion for the story? It was two brothers fighting over the inheritance of their father. Do you get the irony there? What will happen to all of that stuff in his barns? His kids are going to fight over it. And they're going to hate each other for it. And they're not going to talk to each other. And the, the enemy who wants to ruin life is going to use the greed or you might not call it greed, ambition, use a nicer term, the drive to just have some security and be safe, to keep people on the path of death. There's a second reason why it's mindless. And this is actually much more important and it's a lot harder to see. It's in the phrase that God uses where he says, your life is being demanded of you. Now I've said already that means he's died and every one of you is going to die there might be, uh, the, the, the Lord might return before that happens. We have no idea. Jesus said, don't speculate about that. But, but what this means is not just that you're going to die. The phrase here, demanded of you, actually is a verb, a technical verb that comes from the world of lending. When one person has a good which he lends to someone else for a time, he expects there to be some return on his investment. You lend an asset so that in the hands of this other person, it will bring a return. When that person comes back to, to collect what had been loaned, the term he uses is the goods are being demanded of you. And what Jesus is saying in phrasing his story this way is that the man wasn't only wrong to believe that life would come to him when he had enough possessions, he was also wrong about who everything belongs to. Because not only all the grain in the barn, which that guy didn't do anything to grow, the rain did that. But his life itself doesn't even belong to him. And there will be a day when whether you believe that or not, it will be made all too plain to every one of us that even our lives were entrusted to us by God. And he will collect at some point. Amen. I will stand before God and he will say, your life is being demanded of you, Christian. Let me add this as an aside. And I said this in the first sermon I preached in this series. You must listen to these messages with ears of grace. We are not saved by our, our works. We're not, thank God. We're saved by the grace of the one who knows how small all of our works are and who loves us with an undying love nonetheless, who gave himself for us to rescue and deliver us. That is 100% true. Still, I will stand before God and he will say, your life is being demanded of you. So will you. And in that moment, one of the questions that will be there 
is how did you choose to pursue life? Did you look for life through the acquisition of things? And I believe that every instance, every moment that you have squandered with a pursuit that wasn't worth it will be made plain in that moment. In that moment, God also will pour his grace out upon you and where sin abounds, grace abounds much more so. But in this moment right now, you should not be thinking about that. You should be thinking about today. And the question is, how will I today find life? And in this instance, the door is open in front of you and me, and it's a door that leads to the way of life and away from the day of, of death. And, and this path toward life, it will come when we decide to turn away from the habit of, of, of using too much of our time for things and stuff and turn instead toward the path that Jesus opens before us. What is that path? If this is the path of greed, what's the path that goes away from it? That's also in Jesus' story. And as much as I hope and pray, and I, I do both actually, I prayed for all of you this morning, that God would illuminate to you how to walk away from the habit of spending too much time acquiring stuff, even more so that you would find the path that leads in the other direction. It actually comes in the assessment that Jesus makes at the very end of his story, the statement that he wraps it all up with. He contrasts that man's way with the, the right way. Look at verse 21. So it is with those who store up treasures for themselves, but are not rich toward God. The fool in Jesus' story literally stored up treasures for himself. Even though it made the citizens who depended on him more hungry, since it made him richer, he did it anyway, because he was moved by greed in this direction. But he could have made a different choice in the other direction. And according to Jesus, it is the decision to be rich toward God instead of greedy for oneself. He could have chosen something different. Can you imagine what he could have done instead of storing it in his barns? He could have brought those crops to the market and he could have stored them in the hungry stomachs of all of the citizens in the town instead of storing them in the barns. And then life would have been better for everyone else except for him. It would have been worse for him. He would have earned less. But if you want to be rich toward God, which you should be, it will cost you something. It always costs you something to do something good for others. Whenever a person makes a decision that is good for another person, it will in fact cost them something in the present. But listen, it will never cost you anything that's worth holding on to. Anything you lose for following Jesus is better lost. And what you gain, on the other hand, is infinite. And it can't even be estimated. You can't even imagine what it's worth to be rich in the way that this Man could have been rich if only he was generous. And that's what it looks like to be rich toward God. It is to share your excess so that you have less and others have more. In the end, if you choose not to do this, it will cost you everything. But when your life is demanded of you and your hands have been opened, then you find yourself welcomed by a God who says, you used what I gave you in the way that I intended. And that is what God means to inspire us to do as individuals 
and as a church altogether to use everything he has trusted us with in the way that he intended us to use it. Do you think that we need this message today? I think we do. Here's a statistic. In 2022, Americans will lease 1.7 billion square feet of self-storage space. That means that it is one of the most profitable commercial real estate ventures that anyone can endeavor to be involved in right now. If I told you that this year, self-storage would earn $3.95 billion, would you think I was exaggerating? No, it's $39.5 billion this year, which is $39,500 million. Try to fathom that. Is that hard to grasp? Someone here right now is thinking, ooh, I gotta invest in that. <laughs> you were thinking that. Can, can, now, if you have a self-storage unit, it's not time for you to feel guilty unless that guilt is transformed into conviction that moves you to do something good for someone else. Because a self-storage unit is a place that someone pays for to hold on to stuff that they can't even use. There's a humanitarian organization that estimates it could erase all death on planet Earth from preventable diseases, starvation, and malnutrition in five years, and it would cost them $25 billion to do it. What would they do with the other $14.5 billion? Another organization says... 14 and a half billion would erase all of the waterborne problems that plague the parts of the globe right now that, that are populated by people who live on less than a dollar a day. So if Americans stopped paying for self-storage for one year, it would have that kind of impact on the globe. Now, if there's someone here who's made a fortune on self-storage and given a lot of it away, don't sell your self-storage units yet. But listen, this is, this is real. All of us are going to be looking for ways to excuse ourselves from the challenges that are meant to come to us personally through Jesus' teaching. I will as well. I, the pastor who stands before you will be thinking about the people who haven't measured up in his own mind. But I'm called by the living Lord Jesus to set them aside and open my own ears to what he's calling me to hear from him. You are too. And I am in earnest that you should hear. I think I've said this before. I would not be able to stand here in front of you unless there were a bunch of people who were really generous with their stuff. This church wouldn't exist if it weren't for that. I'm aware of that. I would not have this job. We would not have this room to sit in if it weren't for the astounding generosity of, lot of lots of you who've given so that we could have this building and we'll continue to do that. Still, our ears are meant to be opened by Jesus. And I hear two things, and I hope that you do too. Here's the first one. The first thing I hear from him to me, and I, I expect you should hear it too, is give more of your money away. I, my wife and I give money away, but I think Jesus is telling me give more of it away. You could give some of your money to support a runner at World Vision, $50 gets one person Water for Life. If you don't think that's a good organization, fine. There are others that are really trustworthy and good enough for you to give some money to with a good conscience. You could choose to give money to this church. A lot of people have done that. 
It's not the only place to give. I think it's a great place to give. I really do. And I'm not saying that because I work here. I love working at this church, not because of me. I'm sick of me. I know enough about me. I get to work with other people who are dynamic and wonderful. And the mission that God has given this church is absolutely fantastic. The potential in it, I see, is remarkable. I think it's a great uh, investment for God's kingdom to be rich toward God. That's another place you could give more. If you think, oh, he's just asking that for himself. Fine, give it another church. Give somewhere. So that's the first thing I hear from Jesus. Give more of your money away. Here's the second thing I hear from Jesus. Spend less time at work. If you're a student, listen, spend less time on your homework. I know the parents right now hate that. (laughs) Would you forgive me? He says, Jesus said it. I didn't say it. (laughs) You need to do your work, right? Your schoolwork, you have to do it. I have to do my job. I have to work as hard as I can. But there's a time when we keep running in our minds, don't we? And we keep thinking about work and we're ignoring our kids or our spouses or our friends or our extended family. Sometimes we do that because we have conflict that we can't deal with those people. But you trust Jesus, spend less time on stuff and watch what he does for you. Here's what he'll do. When you pursue a life which is rich toward God, you find the life which is real life. Here, this comes to mind to me in this service. It didn't come into mind for the first service, so good thing you waited to the second one. (laughs) Someone should read this on their own. Paul wrote a letter to Timothy, and at the end of his first letter in chapter 6, verse 17, he said, charge the rich of this world not to be haughty or to trust in the illusions of wealth, but to be rich in generosity so that they will not miss the life which is real life. That's what this is about, real life, which is held out before you and me and all of us. And and we just have to take a step forward and and, and open our hands and watch what God does. Can I get an amen? amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word, which is sharp which pierces and breaks down the defenses that we want to put up. I pray that the truth that your spirit has meant to utter and speak through my words, through your word this morning, would resound in our spirits and in our souls, and that we would be hearing from you as you call us onto the path of faithfulness and away from the habits that ruin our lives with lies and deception. As we've listened this morning and thought of other people, deliver us from excusing ourselves by finding others who need to hear more. If you've brought someone to mind that you want us to talk to, then give us the courage and the conviction to do that with humility and grace. But then, would you please inspire each and every one of us to move away from greed toward generosity? And not only individually, but I pray that Renaissance Church would become a profoundly generous church, one that has an open hand with all that you've entrusted us with, with the gifts and riches of the people that you've brought into this church, which are are a commodity that we can trade with for your business, with all of the time we have, with the skills that you've put in our midst, with 
the gifts that we have that are tangible and intangible, and also with our money. Help us be generous. And then we pray that you'd use everything we have to bless others in the way that you intended when you've endowed us with all that we have. We ask for this in the name of Jesus, who is our Savior and our friend. And all God's people said, amen.